to be called a hypocrite in, in life, but especially when you read the Bible, is a very negative thing. A hypocrite is somebody who's trying to appear to, to be something that he is not. In Matthew 23, Christ looks at the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says, Woe to you in your hypocrisy. And he gives out seven woes, and some of them have become well-known proverbial statements in our culture. He says this, for example. He says, you, you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, you should have tithed, without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and indulgence. First, you should clean the inside, and then the outside would also be clean. And then he says, woe to you, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you have rotten corpses or just dried bones. Hypocrisy. And we talked about hypocrisy in the area of prayer. We're studying prayer now. He says, but when it comes to prayer, he says, uh, don't, don't be hypocritical like people who, the Pharisees who stand on the street corners for everyone to see them praying. They pray these long prayers. He says, don't be like that. He says, don't be like the Gentiles who, who heap up phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase as they pray that has no meaning. He says, but, but when you pray, go into your inner closet and pray to your Father who is in heaven, and your Father who is in heaven will reward you as you pray. And as you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so the disciples, you know, they're, they're, they're part of this system of religion, of Judaism, that's become nothing more than formalistic and dead and a rules-oriented do and don't club. They've lost the vibrancy of faith. They've lost belief in Messiah King who would take away their sins, and they're just in this land of legalism and nothingness. And then Jesus comes on the scene and when he teaches, it says in Mark chapter 2 that, that the people were astounded because he spoke with authority and passion, not like the teachers of the law. And then in Luke 11, his disciples observe him praying. And his prayer life is, is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews 5, 7, it talks about how, how Jesus prayed. And it says this, that during his earthly, fleshly pilgrimage, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So, so Christ prayed intimately with, with passion, and his disciples looked at him and said, man, this is not what we're used to. And so they come to him and say, teacher, rabbi, teach us how to pray. And so he gives us the model prayer. We covered the first part last week. Our Father, who art in heaven, and now the first petition, hallowed be your name. And I was reading this week about, about how this first part of the prayer is, is like a, a, a glorious pendulum. It guards you from excess or it guards you from familiarity. Our Father, Abba Father, Abba Father, term of endearment. Dear, dear Abba Father, our Father, who art in heaven the one who rules and reigns, who is king. Or our Father who has numbered the hairs upon our head, and not a bird can fall to, to, from the sky without his knowledge. 
And we're more important than birds, Jesus says. Our fathers number the hairs upon our head. Almighty God, who's measured the nations in a balance. <laughs> Abba Father, who is our guide, who indwells us by the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, who has spoken with finality, who spoke creation into being. You see, see the balance. You see the, the glorious wonder of all that God is for us, our Father who art in heaven. So, so I said last week, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Old Catechism says that from the very beginning, Jesus taught us to pray our Father to awaken or to excite in us childlike reverence and confidence that God is a good Father who loves us. Awaken, excite, our Father who art in heaven. And as we understand the goodness and the eternal nature of God and the mercy and the grace of Christ, we pray, hallowed be your name. Lord, you get the glory. Now, I, growing up, I watched a show called Andy of Mayberry, or Andy, Andy Griffith Show. And many of you have watched it even today. It's on the Classic Channel, and it's about a, a small town in North Carolina, very close to Mount Pilate. And I grew up, I could see Mount Pilate from my front door. So I grew up in Mayberry, basically. If you've ever lived in a small town, Mayberry RFD resonates with your spirit because every small town has numerous ant bees. I grew up with a lot of ant bees. Every small town has Floyd the Barber. Every small town has, if they have a police force that's a part-time guy, and you're hoping he doesn't have a bullet in his pocket because he is Barney. He really is Barney. Every small town has Gomer and Goober, and they have... Otis, the town drunk. Every small town does. But there's a small town in Mark chapter 5 that has a person in their small town that we did not have in my small town in North Carolina. In Mark chapter 5, we're introduced to a man who is demon-possessed by multiple demons. And the townspeople tried to restrain him, the Bible says, with chains and ropes, but he broke the chains and he broke the ropes. And he would cut himself with rocks till he was bleeding profusely. And he would cry out. And he would run all over the hills and the vicinity without any clothes on. We did not have that where I grew up. And so this man who was doing all this, who was demon-possessed by numerous demons, Jesus comes into his area. That's what the Bible says. That, and, and, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before the Lord. And cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? I plead with you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion, or many, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. And now a, a great herd of pigs were feeding nearby. And Jesus commanded demons to go out of the man into the pigs. And the pigs ran into the sea. And then the, the pig farmers who were herding the pigs went into the city and told everybody what had happened. It says this, the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who'd had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart 
from their region. I got to tell you, I've read that many times. I've been thinking about it lately, and it just, it astounds me. Here is, the, the town goes out. They see the demon-possessed man for the first time in a long time, fully dressed. They see the demon-possessed man for the first time, not shrieking and crying and cutting himself. He's in his right mind. He's having a conversation with people around him. And it says they were afraid. And then they did something that is beyond comprehension for me because I have the rest of the Bible and I have the Holy Spirit. They asked Jesus, leave. And you ask yourself, why? Why did they ask Christ to leave? Now, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But if you read commentaries, some say, well, they were thunderstruck because they'd lost the profit of the pigs. Financial reasons. Maybe. I don't know. Here's what I'm thinking lately anyway. I think one reason, or maybe the reason they asked him to leave, is they saw the demon-possessed man sitting beside this Jewish rabbi, this teacher, and they knew that this rabbi had incredible power, but they didn't know if the power was that which they could trust. Is he really good? He's all-powerful, obviously. I mean, this guy's got some kind of power. He's cast out all these demons. This guy's in his right mind. He's clothed. He's making sense. But we're not sure that this man who has power can be trusted. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves today as we look at the reality of God in the person of Christ. We say, can he be trusted? And until I can say with a thunderous, yes, he can be trusted, I will never pray the first petition of the model prayer, hallowed be your name. See, we have the rest of the story. These people did not have that. We have the full life of Christ, his passion in Gethsemane, his sweating drops of blood, his betrayal, his horrific trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, the poured out Holy Spirit, the complete Bible. We have it all. They didn't. And I say to us who have it all, do you trust the God who is, whose name is Jesus? Do you trust that he is our Abba Father, who rules in heaven. He is our tender, precious Lord who's in heaven. I've been praying through Psalm 28 this week for a number of reasons, but the last part of verse 28, the last verse of Psalm 28 says this, O Lord, be their shepherd and carry them forever. I've just been thinking, you know, how many times have I said, Lord, watch over, fill in the blank. But, But now I should say, Lord, carry them. That's the kind of good shepherd he is. He not only is our shepherd. He carries us. And so can you trust Jesus? Can you trust him with the totality of all that you are? If you see the beauty of Christ and the glory and the goodness of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you pray, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, which means to treat as with ultimate significance, which means to treat with great reverence, which means to treat with with great worship. So I'm going to make three points about hallowed and make an application. The first point is this, is that that when we pray hallowed be your name, we are treating his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as that which is our ultimate concern. John Calvin from the 16th century said, to hallow the name of God means nothing else than to give unto the Lord the glory due his name. So the men never think of, speak of him, but with the deepest veneration. The opposite of that is to profane his name which takes place when men either speak disrespectfully of the divine majesty 
or without the reverence they ought to feel towards him. Lord, as I see your goodness and your mercy and your grandeur, and I see all that you are, I pray, hallowed, 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 hallowed be your name. You get the glory, God. In my life, in my relationships, in my family, in my pursuits, you get the glory. And I trust you, Abba Father. I trust you. You're in heaven. You reign. So hallowed be your name. We never take his name lightly. We say there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than through the name of Jesus Christ. And see, in our culture today, when I was out shopping a few months ago with my wife, and I was doing the sit and wait routine. I usually have a book with me. I didn't have a book with me, so I looked down. There was a women's, I forgot which women's magazine it was. It didn't strike a chord in my heart. It's not one on my to-read list, but it was a women's magazine. And I flipped through it, and there was an interview with Katy Perry, who is, uh, I'm told, a very talented, mid-20s, gifted young lady. She sings songs, whatever. That's all I know about Katy Perry, all right? But the interviewer, she said, I was raised in a Christian context. I was taught that Jesus was Lord as a child, but she's now moved to California, and I've gotten involved in uh, spiritual exercises in the New Age movement. Now, now I know that Jesus is just one of many gods, that you may say Jesus, and I say something else, but God cannot be defined. You know, listen, church, that is profaning the name of God. We see there's no difference. There's only one name by which men must be saved. There's only one God who is, and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's revealed himself in Jesus. So as we speak of him, as we teach of him, we teach the glory of Christ. Now, speaking about profaning his name, there's a a catechism question that says profaning the name of God means you use it reverently, and then it says this, and you don't share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders when his name is misused. And that's interesting in our culture. That's a really interesting application in our culture. That's my old confession of faith. And I, I thought about something. I read that. I thought about a story I heard several years ago about a woman who's gone to be with the Lord, and she was about 5'2", and she was a fire plug for Christ, and she just lived it out, and she was bold, and her husband is still alive, and he told me this story, and I, we both chuckled. Uh, he said after church, they were going home one day. They stopped at a 7-Eleven or convenience store to get some, something they'd left because something they needed to complete their meal. And he said, I'm just going to sit in the car. She's going to run in. She said, just stay here. So we parked on, here's the 7-Eleven, the convenience store. We parked down here, and here's the store, and down here is the other side. And on, on this end of the store were a bunch of 20, mid-20s young men talking very loudly and saying things that should not be said. And so this lady gets out of the car, and she grabs the handle to turn into the store. And her husband said, I saw her do that. And then I realized, uh-oh. And instead of going in the store, she took a hard left and went straight down into that circle of young men. And this is the conversation. Young men, I can tell by the way you're talking, you did not go to the Lord's house today. You're saying things that should not be said, and you should be ashamed. And her husband's going, oh, no. Had just had hit 911, maybe, he was thinking. And he, she said, at that, their, all their heads fell like this. And she said, I'm old enough to be your grandmama. And I promise you, your grandmamas would not be proud of you right now. And when, you know, one of the guys, kind of the leader said, you know, you're right. And 
my grandmama's been praying for me. And she would agree with everything you said. She said, I tell you what, next week you go to church and you worship the Lord and don't you talk like that. And she walked off. And I thought, Whew. you know, that's what it means. I mean, in, in, when you're out and see, when people let loose a chain of profanities, I just think, oh, okay. But when they take the name of the Lord my God in vain, it's like taking an ice pick and sticking it in your arm. And just say, hey, hey, come on, yeah, can, can we can just be careful there? Just come on. I have a good friend who's a football coach. And he had one of his fellow football coaches and didn't really know him that well, just hired him, and the guy was on the field. And, and he started screaming the Lord's name in vain. This coach pulled him aside and he said, Can I ask you a question? He said, Sure. Do you want God to damn our team? No. Why would I want God to damn our team? That's why you're screaming. He said, just, just be careful. Said, oh, I'm so sorry. Look, I love you, man. Just, just don't be an innocent bystander. Don't, don't be a, a guilty bystander. You know, his name is precious. I told you that Sarah and I just went to spend some time in northern Africa. We went to Tunisia and spent some time with some cross-cultural workers called missionaries, and I taught a class for a week. And... Um, so, so we're in this place in northern Tunisia in the middle of nowhere, and we hear about this couple that's involved with our mission board, and we get in touch with them, take them out to a couple of meals, spend a day with them just to encourage them, say, hey, we want to see, they haven't seen any Westerners to really speak English to for a while, so they're thrilled just to be able to speak English. She, uh, they have three kids, and they're there to start a church where there is no church to proclaim the name of Jesus, some of the people that have never heard. Really cool. And they say, well, why don't you go to the beach with us? We're on a public beach. My husband's going to be late. So we go to the public beach, and we're standing there. And in uh, and, and this part of the world, this is a swimwear for women. They wear basically burkas, and they swim in burkas. It's just pretty amazing. Men wear Western swimwear, but women have to wear burkas. And so we're standing there, and, and this, this woman is from Oklahoma. The Oklahoma women are just tough. You know, they... Conestoga wagons, they hum boomer sooner. They're just tough women. And she was tough. In fact, after college, she said, I had a three-year mission assignment. And I said, what would you do? She said, well, there's another young lady on my team. And we went, we were in northern Africa. And we would find caravans going across northern Africa. And we would ask the chieftain if we could accompany that caravan for several weeks. And we would just camp among the women every night and share the gospel because we had free access to women. I said, you, are you kidding me? You really did that? I said, last week I went to Barnes & Noble and got a Diet Coke without ice. You know, and I just, that just was, was amazing to me. I said, she did that to tell people about Jesus. She's tough. I mean, she's tough. And uh, so we're standing there talking, and there is a little resort up here that Tunisia has a French connection that some Europeans go to, mostly French. And as we were on this public beach where women are dressed like this, I looked up, and coming down the beach were two European women. And one of them had on a pretty small two-piece bathing suit. And she was about four decades beyond the two-piece bathing suit epoch in her life, you know? <laughs> I kind of, I looked up and went, oh, 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 oh. You know, you're like, like this, oh, gosh, no. So I didn't really, I just looked, up, oh, like that, you know. And so she walked by, and I'm, I'm just talking to her, doesn't pay attention. And she walked by, this tough missionary woman said under her breath, 
If you're going to desecrate the flag of my country, then at least cover your body. I went, and I looked up, and as she walked by, she had on an American flag for a two-piece. And I went, I looked down, I was glad I was wearing green shorts and dark, not wearing red, white, and blue, you know. Because she could have done a backward kung fu flip and lassoed her like a calf and put on a burka in five seconds. And she was that type of woman. But as I thought about that afterwards, I really appreciated her spirit. I did. Good for her. Listen, church, how much more should my heart be weighed when the glorious name of Christ, the Father, the Spirit, is misrepresented? How much more? See, my, my prayer should be, hallowed be your name. The second point is that, is that when, when the living God's name is exalted and lifted high and, and praised and worshiped and adored for all that he's done for us, all that he is for us, then, then when that happens, then we get the peace. When, when he is worshiped, then we get the joy. When he is enthroned, then we get God's shalom, the webbing together of peace and hope and purpose in our lives. See, when God is hallowed, his name is hallowed, we get the peace. When his name is exalted, we get the joy. Now, I love John Calvin, and this is what Calvin says. Calvin died in 1564. He said, this Halloween, praising of God, yields a great benefit to us because when God's name is hallowed, as we ask, our own hallowing or upbuilding in turn also comes about. I agree. But then the next sentence says this, and this is where I disagree. He says, but our eyes ought to be closed and in a sense blinded to this sort of advantage. I'm going, stop. How, how, how can my eyes be blinded to the glory of the hallowing of God in my life? It can't be. See, I think God has made us as people who say, God, you get the glory, I get the worship and the praise and the thanksgiving. God, you get the hallowing, I get the peace and the joy. When God's name is hallowed and built up, then I get the purpose. My life has meaning. Reading through 2 Chronicles recently about all the kings of Judah and Israel, and they would do well maybe for a season, then crash and burn, or just crash and burn off right, off, right out of the batter's box. And I came across a little verse about a guy named Jotham. This is what it says about King Jotham. Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord is God. Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord is God. Do you want God's purpose and smile upon your life? Then order your life under the Lordship of Christ. And I thought about all the appeals to desire throughout Scripture. God says to General Joshua in the Old Testament, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but on it you shall meditate day and night. These first five books of the Bible, Joshua. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and, and then you'll have good success. You want to have success? You want to have fulfillment? Then, then walk in obedience to the revelation of who God is. Or Proverbs chapter 4, uh, verses 18 and following says this, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until full day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. 
But the path, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. I know people who just have turned their back on God and they just stumble. They just stumble. I know other people who have walked with the Lord for year after year after year and they walk in the light of Christ. Paul says the same, same thing in the book of Romans. In the New Testament, he says that in Romans 6, he says, what fruit, what fruit, church, were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? When you lived without Christ and lived with your lust in control, what, 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 what fruit was there? Nothing. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become a slave of God, the fruit you get leads to growth in Christ and eternal life. So, so I, I, just, I just feel that we need to understand when God's name is hallowed, we get the peace. I was thinking about being in the early church and hearing the book of Ephesians read for the very first time. Maybe at the church at Ephesus or another church in Asia Minor and the scroll of the book of Ephesians being passed around. It has the apostolic imperture of Paul and the church is receiving it. And so Ephesians is six chapters and it's all about our position in Christ and what God has done for us. And it's glorious about we're saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. It's nothing we can do. And that's glorious. And it talks about God's destroyed the dividing wall between ethnicities and made us one in Christ. That's wonderful. And then he applies that gospel to so many different areas of life. And then he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And yeah, you go, wow. And he says, and be submissive to one another out of love. And then he talks about the family and he talks about wives and he talks about husbands. And I'm sitting there as a husband, I'm sitting on a, on a stool listening or on a log or I'm just sitting there listening and it says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves the church. I fall off my log. I look at some of my buddies and I think, you know, they're new in the Lord. And I say, did I hear that? Did I hear that? And then Paul, by the Holy Spirit, unpacks it. And he says this, it says, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. See, Paul says, he says, men, I've got your attention now. Let me tell you this. If you love your wife, you love yourself. If you put her desires in front of your own, if you care for her, if you cherish her, if you wash her with the word, if you woo over her, then your life will go well because he who loves his wife loves his own body. It's an appeal to satisfaction in the Lordship of Christ. And so when God's name is hallowed, we get the joy. Tim Keller, right on this passage, said this. He said, all of our failures are failures of adoration. Now, just think about that. I'll just chew on that. He says, all of our failures flow from a failure to adore God for his goodness and to entrust our lives to him. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. First petition, God, you get the glory. You get the glory. You get the glory. In our relationships, 
and my academics and my zip code place and what I'm doing, you get the glory. And thirdly, you, you cry out, hallowed be your name, because you realize that you desperately need the empowering presence of the Lord. You've tasted the goodness, hallowed be your name. But you cry out, hallowed be your name, because, because listen, listen, the, the, the seeds of destruction are in your spirit. That left to ourselves, we can't do it. We should be desperate people who cry out, hallowed be your name. God, please, our Father who art in heaven, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, you're good. You're in heaven, you reign, so hallowed be your name. Lord, you, you get the glory because the seeds of destruction are in my heart and life. There's a passage, a little statement from C.S. Lewis, where he says this, he says, uh, the difference between crying out, basically, hallowed be your name, and just kind of with a brief cursory coming unto God, is the difference is between Paint, which is just laid on the surface and dye or stain, which soaks right through. I need the power of God to soak through my life, to change me, to fashion me. Because, because listen, I don't care if you've been a Christian for, for five months or for 35 years or 40 years, the seeds of destruction are in your bosom. Apart from Christ, it will not go well. I desperately need Him. I was thinking about this, uh, reading through, uh, again, the life of Solomon in the Old Testament. In the, the Old Testament, there's a passage. Now, king Solomon's the son of David, the king of Israel. Solomon has a vision from God. God says, ask what you will and you'll get it. And he says, I don't want power. I don't want riches. I need wisdom. And God says, Solomon, because you've asked for wisdom and not for riches or power, I'm going to give you everything. And so Solomon life goes along, we read, this was his point of destruction, church. It says, Solomon loved many foreign women, and they turned his heart from the living God. His downfall, his seed of destruction, he didn't cry out, hallowed be your name in his relationships with his wives. But later, late in his life, we read about a woman named the Queen of Sheba who had incredible wealth. And she heard about this wise, brilliant man from Israel named Solomon. And she said, I don't believe it. Maybe she said, I don't think there's a man that can be that smart. I don't know. But she said, I, I don't believe it. And so she said, I'm going to find out. I'm going to do, do a demographic research with just me and him. And so she put a lot of priceless things on a bunch of donkeys and camels and she left her kingdom and she went to visit King Solomon and she just sat there and she listened and she took notes and she talked to the people. She did a research project. This is what it says. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 9. And then she said to King Solomon, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, half the greatness of your wisdom was not told to me. You surpass every report that I ever heard. Happy are your wives. Happy are these your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on his throne as the king. That's a good report. 
And then he goes on and says this. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind, and every one of them brought his presence, articles of gold and silver and garments and myrrh and spices and horses and mules so much year by year. And he had 4,000 stalls of horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. He had it all. But in the midst of this great story about Solomon, he dedicates the temple to the Lord. He gives this incredible statement about obedience. And this is what it says. This just struck me. This is chapter 8, 2 Chronicles. Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter from Egypt, a non-believer, a non-worshiper of Jehovah, brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her, and he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, the king of Israel, for the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Close quote. He knew. He knew. He said, she can't. She can't be in the temple precinct because she's not a worshiper of Jehovah. She worships various gods of different names at different times of the year. She doesn't worship the one true God. She can't be in this precinct because this is holy as unto the Lord. He knew. See, the seed of destruction in Solomon's heart was this. He loved many foreign women. They turned his heart, and it blossomed, and it grew, and it took root, and as an old man... This is him. In the midst of incredible blessing, his heart wasn't holy, the Lord's. And so, so we cry, hallowed be the name, because we're, we're desperate people. I'm telling you, we're desperate. And so one big, quick application. So all that application. The book of Philippians. Uh, is a New Testament book. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. Four chapters, the last chapter is really an application chapter. He talks about thorny relational issues. And this is what he says. Verse 4, chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Be God-centered in your thinking. Next verse. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Your reasonableness, your, your approachability, your humility, the fact that you're intreatable. Though you're not arrogant, obnoxious, always has the answer. Let, let your reasonableness be known to all men because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. And then these verses that many of you have thought about many times. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be overly concerned, he says. Don't be anxious. Don't be overly concerned. Don't let anything eat your life up. And he doesn't say, blessings, Paul. He unpacks it. Say, well, how? <laughs> how, Paul? How can I be a reasonable gentleman and not strike back? How, Paul, can I not be overly wrought with concerns? Because, listen, all of us here have concerns. Everyone here does. Some much larger than others, but everyone here is either in a crisis coming out of a crisis or going into a crisis. That's life. So, so how, see, how, Paul, how, how in the world? Come on, Paul. How, how in the world am I not overly anxious? This is what he says. First of all, rejoice in the Lord. And then he reinforces that by saying, 
in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ now this is what he says so you, you don't get overwhelmed because you're centered on the Abba Father goodness of the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Prayer. Prayer. One of my applications from this passage is that I want to be a man more and more of adoration. A lot of times when we pray, the first thing we do is we pray for this or that or this or that or this or that. And I'm, I'm just, as I study this, we need to spend a few minutes just, if you were, detoxing and honoring the Lord for His goodness and, and praising Him. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise. The peace of God that cannot be fully understood will guard your hearts and your minds. How many times have you said, if you have a few years on you, as you've walked with somebody who has walked through a horrible time in their life, and you said this, I don't know how they do it. Here's the answer. The peace of God that passes understanding. It's real. It's real. And it garrisons, it stands guard over your hearts and your minds. So you, you see the Abba, Father, goodness of God who reigns. And the first petition, hallowed be your name. Let's, let's, let's pray, okay? Uh, Lord, we, uh, we stop now and we, we just say, hallowed be your name. You get the glory. God, get the glory um, in our relationships. Get the glory in our seeming victories and defeats. You get the glory um, in good days and bad. You get the glory because if you get the glory, uh, then we get your peace. If, you, if your name is the ultimate concern of my life, then I get the purpose that comes in knowing Christ. If, if, if your name and your renown is the cry of my heart, then, then I walk with a sense of, 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 of dignity. So get the glory. Get the glory. Get the glory, Lord, um, in, in the way we respond to each other. Get, get the glory in the way we care for people. Get, get the glory in the way we spend our lives and our energy and our money and our talents. Get the glory. Because, God, when you get the glory, when your name is hallowed, we get the joy. When your name is hallowed, we get the peace that passes understanding. So, so do that, I pray. Oh, God, please. As we study this prayer, may your name be rich in our lives. I, I pray we would cry out, hallowed be your name because you're worthy of worship, but also hallowed be your name because, because God... We want to walk with purpose. I pray we cry out, hallowed be your name, because we know that the seeds of destruction reside in our own hearts, and we desperately need the power and grace of the Holy Spirit to walk in the way of Christ. We need it.
so we commit our way to you. Um, blessed be your name, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.